okay, this is bronchiolitis, RSV, and asthma. Um, this part, this section is going to be the maternal child nursing care in Canada part, which is page 1352 to 1357. Enjoy. It doesn't say this, but I'm starting at infections of the lower airways because it's the only place that makes sense to start. So, the reactive portion of the lower respiratory tract includes the bronchi and bronchioles in children. Cartilaginous support of the large airways is not fully developed until adolescence. Consequently, the smooth muscle in these structures represents a major factor in the constriction of the airway, particularly in the bronchioles, the portion that extends from the bronchi to the alveoli. Um, bronchitis, sometimes referred to as tracheobronchitis, is inflammation of the large airways, so the trachea and bronchi, which is frequently associated with an upper respiratory infection. Bronchitis is a mild, self-limiting disease that requires only symptomatic treatment, including analgesics, antipyretics, and humidity. Uh, cough suppressants in older children and adolescents may be useful to allow best rest, um, but can interfere with clearance of secretions. Parents should discuss use of these with their healthcare provider before administering them. Most patients recover uneventfully in 5 to 10 days. It can be associated with underlying conditions such as cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis and can become chronic in nature with a cough over three months. Adolescents with bronchitis should be screened for tobacco or marijuana use. Respiratory syncytial virus and bronchiolitis. So bronchiolitis is an acute viral infection with maximum effect at the bronchiolar level. By age three, most children have been infected at least once. In Canada, RSV infection is the most frequent cause of hospitalization in children less than two years of age with bronchiolitis. In northern Canada, Indigenous children have one of the highest rates of RSV bronchiolitis hospitalizations in the world, with a 1% mortality rate and a 3% mortality rate for children with underlying cardiac or respiratory disease, um, respectively. Inuit children have a bronchiolitis rate of up to 57%. The Canadian RSV season is usually from November to April. Severe RSV infections in the first year of life have been thought to represent a significant risk factor for the development of asthma up to age 13. However, a strong causal relationship between RSV and later development of asthma has not been conclusively shown. RSV infection may also occur in children older than one year who have a chronic or serious disabling disease. Occasionally, infants with RSV may have a concurrent viral or bacterial infection, such as otitis media or pertussis. Risk factors include a birth month of November, December, or January, being in daycare or having siblings in daycare, more than six individuals living in the home, a birth weight less than the 10th percentile for gestational age, male gender, formula fit infants, and immediately immediate family history with eczema. A none of it study revealed additional factors, uh, maternal smoking during pregnancy, residing in communities outside of Qualoit, being a full Inuit lineage and overcrowding, the risk factors for infants developing severe RSV are being less than six weeks old, prematurity under six months of age, underlying cardiac or respiratory conditions, and immunocompromise, particularly transplant patients. RSV is transmitted from exposure to contaminated secretions. RSV can live on fomites for several hours and on hands for 30 minutes. Pathophysiology, so RSV affects the epithelial cells of the respiratory tract. The ciliated cells swell, protrude into the lumen, and lose their cilia. RSV produces a fusion of the infected cell membrane with cell membranes of adjacent epithelial cells, thus forming a giant cell. The bronchiolar mucosa swells, and lumina are subsequently filled with mucus and exudate. 
the walls of the bronchi and bronchioles are infiltrated with inflammatory cells and peribronchiolar interstitial pneumonitis is usually present. The varying degrees of obstruction produced in small air passages leads to hyperinflation, obstructive emphysema resulting from partial obstruction, and patchy areas of atelectasis. Dilation of bronchial passages on inspiration allows sufficient space for intake of air, but narrowing the passages uh, on expiration prevents air from leaving the lungs. Um, thus, air is trapped distal to the obstruction and causes progressive overinflation. Um, so, we have a little comparison of conditions affecting the bronchi. So, uh, a comparison between asthma, bronchitis, and bronchiolitis. So, asthma is an exaggerated response of bronchi to a trigger such as URI, dander, cold, air, exercise, bronchospasm, exudation, and edema of bronchi, airway obstruction, inflammatory response. Um, asthma affects infancy to adolescence age groups. Most often, viruses such as RSV in infants, but may be any variety of URI uh, pathogens, so that's what causes asthma. Asthma's predominant characteristics are a wheezing, um, a cough, and the treatment are inhaled corticosteroids, bronchodilators, leukotriene modifiers, allergen, um, control of triggers, long-term anti-inflammatory medications. With bronchitis, it usually occurs in association with an upper respiratory infection, um, seldom an isolated ent- entity. Uh, the, it's affects kids in the first four years of their life. Um, it's usually caused by a virus. Um, other agents such as bacteria, fungi, allergic disorders, and airborne irritants can trigger symptoms. Predominant characteristics are persistent, dry, hacking cough, which is worse at night, becoming productive in two to three days. Um, the treatment are cough suppressants if needed. And then we have bronchiolitis. So it's most common infection disease of lower airways, maximum obstructive impact at the bronchiolar level. Uh, it usually affects children uh, 2 to 12 months of age. It's rare after age 2. The peak incidence is approximately age 6 months. Um, the causes of viruses, predominantly RSVs, also adenoviruses, parainfluenza viruses, human metanumovirus, and myo- mycoplasma pneumonia. Um, predominant characteristics are labored respirations, poor feeding, cough, tachypnea, retractions, and flaring nares, emphysema, increased nasal mucus, wheezing, and may have a fever. Treatment is to provide supplemental oxygen if saturations are less than or equal 90%, uh, bronchodilators, suctioning the narrow pharynx, ensuring adequate fluid intake, and maintaining adequate oxygenation. Signs and symptoms of respiratory syncytial virus include rhinorrhea, pharyngitis, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, possible ear or eye drainage, and intermittent fever. Those are the initial symptoms. With progression of the illness, you're going to see increased coughing and wheezing, tachypnea and retractions, and cyanosis. And in the severe state of the illness, you're going to see tachypnea greater than 70 breaths per minute. Holy shit. Listlessness, apnea expels, and poor air exchange um, decrease breath sounds. So, clinical manifestations of syncytial virus and bronchiolitis, um, usually beginning with an upper respiratory infection after an incubation about five to eight days. Symptoms such as rhinorrhea and low-grade fever often appear first. Um, OM and conjunctivitis may also be present. In time, a cough may develop. If the disease progresses, it becomes a lower respiratory tract infection and manifests typical symptoms. Infants may have several days of upper respiratory infection symptoms or no symptoms except slight lethargy, poor feeding, or irritability. 
Once the lower airway is involved, classic manifestations include signs of altered air exchange, such as wheezing, retractions, crackles, dyspnea, tachypnea, and diminished breath sounds. Apnea may be the first recognized indicator of RSV infection in very young infants, so younger than one month. Diagnostics? Um, so nasal um, identification has been simplified by the development of tests done on nasal or nasopharyngeal secretions. Um, so using either rapid immunofluorescent antibody, direct fluorescent antibody, or DFA, staining or enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA techniques for RSV antigen detection, hyperinflation of the lungs is generally seen on the chest x-ray. Therapeutic management. So children with bronchiolitis are treated symptomatically with cool humidified oxygen, adequate fluid intake, airway maintenance, and medications. Most children with bronchiolitis can be managed at home. Hospitalization is usually recommended for children with respiratory distress or those who cannot maintain adequate hydration. Other reasons for hospitalization include complicating conditions such as underlying lung or heart disease or associated debilitated states, or a home environment where adequate management is questionable. An infant who is tachypneic or apneic, has marked retractions, seems listless, or has a history of poor fluid intake or is dehydrated should be closely observed for respiratory failure. Humidified oxygen is administered via mask or head hood in con concentration sufficient to maintain adequate oxygenation at or above 90% as measured by pulse oximetry. An alternative oxygen delivery system is humidified high-flow nasal cannula therapy, which may be tolerated and potentially decrease the need for mechanical ventilation, but still needs further research on efficacy. Humidified mist may be administered, but a Cochrane review has shown no evidence that either supports or negates the use of mist. Routine chest percussion and postural drainage, formerly chest physiotherapy or CPT, are not recommended. Infants with abundant nasal secretions benefit from periodic suctioning. Fluids by mouth may be contraindicated because of tachypnea, weakness, and fatigue. Thus, IV fluids are preferred until the acute stage of the disease has passed. Nasogastric fluids may be required if the infant is unable to tolerate oral fluids and a peripheral IV is difficult to establish. Clinical assessments, non-invasive oxygen monitoring, and blood gas values may guide therapy. Medical therapy for bronchiolitis is primarily supportive and aimed at decreasing airway hyperresonance and inflammation and promoting adequate fluid intake. Bronchodilators may provide short-term benefit, yet overall significant improvement in the child's condition is not always appreciable. Single dose of bronchodilator therapy is often prescribed to assess for clinical response. If no response is evident, no further doses are given. Um, racemic epinephrine has been shown to produce modest improvement in ventilation status. Nebulized hypertonic 3% saline may decrease hospital stay and improve mucociliary clearance. Corticosteroids inhaled or systemic um, and antihistamines have not been shown to be effective and are not recommended for routine use. Antibiotics are not part of the treatment of RSV unless there is a coexisting bacterial infection. Um, additional recommendations include encouraging breastfeeding, avoiding passive tobacco smoke exposure, and promoting preventive measures, including hand hygiene. Um, so prevention of respiratory syncytial virus, um, the only prevention available in Canada, um, for RSV is palivizumab, a monoclonal antibody, which is given monthly in an IM injection during RSV season. Children admitted to the hospital with suspected RSV infection may be assigned separate rooms or grouped with other RSV-infected children. Droplet contact and routine precautions should be used, including hand hygiene, 
not touching one's nasal mucosa or conjunctiva, and using gloves, masks, and gowns when entering the patient's room. Other isolation procedures of potential benefit are those aimed at diminishing the number of hospital personnel, visitors, and uninfected children in contact with the child. Another measure is to make patient assignments so that nurses assigned to children with RSV are not caring for other patients who are considered high risk. Infants with RSV often have copious nasal secretions, making breathing and feeding difficult. The child may lose weight or stop feeding altogether. If the child is breastfeeding, the mother should be encouraged to continue feeding the infant, or if feedings are contraindicated because of the acuity of the illness, the mother should pump her milk and store it appropriately for later use. Parents should be taught how to instill normal saline drops into the nares and suction the mucus with a bulb syringe before feedings and before bedtime so that the child can eat and rest better. Unfortunately, no medications appropriate for infants can help with these symptoms. To address this issue of decreased fluid intake, parents may offer small amounts of clear fluids, 5 to 10 mils at a time, with a medication syringe every 5 to 10 minutes or so to maintain adequate hydration. Infants may cough or vomit as the secretions settle in the stomach. This may make them prone to emesis of such secretions. Additional nursing care is aimed at monitoring oxygenation with pulse oximetry, ensuring that bronchodilator therapy is optimized by using a small mask for delivery, and providing information for the parent regarding the infant's status. For the most part, infants recover quickly from the disease and resume normal daily activities, including fluid intake. Such infants are at risk for further episodes of wheezing that may or may not involve other RSV infection. Parents, however, may be concerned that the infant has another serious case of RSV infection. Okay, pneumonias. So pneumonia is inflammation of the pulmonary parenchyma, common in childhood but occurs more frequently in infancy and early childhood. Clinically, pneumonia may occur either as a primary disease or as a complication of another illness. The causative agent is either inhaled into the lungs or directly comes from the bloodstream. The most common useful classification of pneumonia is based on the etiological agent, so viral bacteria, mycoplasmal, or aspiration of foreign substances. Many organisms can cause pneumonia uh, vary according to the child's age. Histomycosis, I cannot pronounce that, Um, and other fungi also cause pneumonia. Pneumonitis is a localized acute inflammation of the lung without the toxemia associated with lobar pneumonia. Clinical manifestation of pneumonia vary depending on the etiological agent, child's age, and the child's systemic reaction to the infection, the extent of the lesions, and the degree of bronchial and bronchiolar obstruction. Causative agent is identified from the clinical history, the child's age, general health history, the physical exam, radiography, and the laboratory examination. Viral pneumonias, which occur more frequently than bacterial pneumonias, are seen in children of all ages and are often associated with viral upper respiratory tract infections. Viruses that cause pneumonia include RSV in infants and parainfluenza. Influenza, human metanumovirus, and adenovirus in older children. Differentiation among viruses is usually made by clinical features such as child's age, past medical history, season of year, and radiographic and laboratory exam. Viral infections of the respiratory tract render the affected child more susceptible to secondary bacterial invasion, especially when there is denuded bronchial mucosa. Treatment is symptomatic and includes measures to promote oxygenation and comfort, such as oxygen administration with cool mist, um, antipyretics for fever management, monitoring, fluid intake, and family support. Antimicrobial therapy is usually reserved for children in whom a bacterial infection is demonstrated by appropriate cultures. General signs of pneumonia. So we have fever, which is usually quite high, greater than or equal to 39.5 degrees Celsius. 
respiratory, so cough, non-productive to productive with whitish sputum, tachypnea, breath sounds, ronchi or fine crackles, dullness with percussion, chest pain, abdominal pain with lower lobe involvement, retractions, nasal flaring, pallidocyanosis, depends on the severity, chest x-ray foam, so diffuse or patchy infiltration with peribronchial distribution, behavior, irritable, irritable, restless, or lethargic, and gastrointestinal, so anorexia, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Primary atypical pneumonia refers to pneumonia that is caused by pathogens other than the traditional, most common, and readily cultured bacteria, such as S. pneumoniae. Uh, the category of atypical pneumonias, M. pneumoniae and chlamydia pneumoniae, are the most common causes of community-acquired pneumonia in children aged 5 and older. Occur in the fall and winter months, more prevalent in crowded living situations. Most affected persons recover from acute illness in 7 to 10 days, with symptomatic treatment followed by a week of convalescence. The incubation period is 2 to 3 weeks, but the cough may last several weeks. Hospitalization is rarely necessary. Um, erythromycin, for those younger than nine years, azithromycin and clarithromycin are the primary agents used for treating atypical pneumonia. Bacterial pneumonia is the most common bacterial pathogen responsible for community-acquired pneumonia in both children and adults. Um, beyond the newborn period, bacterial pneumonias display distinct clinical patterns that facilitate their differentiation from other forms of pneumonia. Onset of illness is abrupt and generally follows a viral infection that disturbs the natural defense mechanisms of the upper respiratory tract. Child with bacterial pneumonia usually appears ill. Symptoms include fever, malaise, rapid and shallow respirations, cough, and chest pain. Pain of pneumonia may be referred to the abdomen and confused with appendicitis. Chills and meningeal symptoms, meningism, are common. Um, most older children with pneumonia can be treated at home if the condition is recognized and treatment is initiated early. Antibiotic therapy, bed rest, liberal oral intake of fluid, and administration of an antipyretic for fever are the principal therapeutic measures. Follow-up exam is recommended for small infants and toddlers. Hospitalization is indicated when pleural effusion or empyema accompanies the disease. When respiratory distress occurs in situations in which compliance with therapy is difficult in infants less than one month old and when there are chronic illnesses such as heart disease or BPD. IV fluids may be necessary to ensure adequate hydration and oxygen is required if the child is in respiratory distress. Some children may require um, initial therapy with parenteral antibiotics because of the severity of the illness. Um complications um, are seen infrequently uh, because of early vigorous antibiotic and supportive therapy. However, some children, especially infants with staphylococcal or GABHS pneumonia, develop empyema, pneumothorax, or tension pneumothorax. Um, AOM and pleural effusion are common in children with pneumococcal pneumonia. Continuous closed chest drainage may be instituted when purulent fluid is aspirated. If a large amount of purulent drainage is obtained, an appropriate antibiotic is instilled into the pleural space and active chest drainage is discontinued for approximately one hour after the installation. Closed drainage is continued until drainage is free of pathogens, which rarely requires more than five to seven days. Sometimes repeated pleural taps are sufficient to remove fluid. However, if the purulent drainage accumulates rapidly and is highly viscous, Continuous chest drainage is preferred. Thoracotomy with open debridement of the infected lung tissue may be required if empyema and pneumothorax tend to recur. A partial thoroscopic lobectomy may be performed. Alternatively, video-assisted thoroscopy or insertion of a small bore percutaneous chest tube with installation of fibrinolytics are the best current options and may preclude the use of open debridement and thoracotomy. 
prevention. So currently the use of heptavalent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine is recommended for infants and children. Um, this addition has nearly eradicated invasive pneumococcal, pneumococcal disease in children and adults. Um, this vaccine has also decreased the rates of lobar pneumonia, pneumococcal meningitis, and OM. There has been a relatively small increase in an antibiotic-resistant strain of pneumococcal pneumonia um, that has developed as a result of the 72% drop in hospital admissions for lobar pneumonia. Um, nursing care. So, primarily supportive and symptomatic, but necessitates thorough respiratory assessment as well as administration of supplemental oxygen, fluids, and antibiotics. The child's respiratory rate and oxygenation status, as well as vital signs, pain level, and general disposition and level of activity are frequently assessed. To prevent dehydration, fluids should be frequently administered intravenously during the acute phase. Nursing care of the child with a chest tube requires close attention to respiratory status as noted previously. The chest tube and drainage device should be monitored for proper function. So drainage is not impeded, vacuum setting is correct, tubing is free of kinks, dressing covering tube, insertion site is intact, water seal is maintained if used, and chest tube remains in place. Movement in bed and ambulation with a chest tube should be encouraged according to the child's respiratory status. Children often require a mild analgesic, such as acetaminophen. If needed, supplemental oxygen may be administered by nasal cannula, face mask, or blow-by, which is the process of wafting or blowing oxygen past a child's face. Children are usually more comfortable in a semi-erect position, but should be allowed to determine the position of comfort. Lying on the affected side, if pneumonia is unilateral, splints the chest on that side and can reduce through pleural rubbing that often causes discomfort. Fever is controlled by the cool environment and administration of antipyretic medications. Children, especially infants and ineffectual cough or difficulty handling secretions, require suctioning to maintain a patent airway. A simple bulb suction syringe is usually sufficient for clearing the nares and the nasopharynx of infants, but mechanical suction should be readily available if needed. A non-invasive suction device may be used to suction the infant's nares without the danger of causing nasal trauma. The device may be connected to mechanical suction for best results. Older children can usually handle secretions without assistance. Chest percussion, incentive spirometer, postural drainage, and nebulized bronchodilator treatments may be prescribed depending on the child's condition. Chest percussions and postural drainage currently lack research evidence for improving a patient's condition or decreasing length of stay among children with community-acquired pneumonia. The presence of a caregiver often provides the child with source of comfort and support. It is important to involve the entire family in the child's care as appropriate and to encourage questions and facilitate effective communication. Allowing the child to be involved in regular activities such as quiet play may help reduce anxiety and fears of hospitalization. For the child being cared for at home, the nurse needs to educate the parents regarding observation of worsening symptoms, antibiotic and antipyretic administration, and encouragement of oral fluid intake. Return to school or daycare is usually permitted according to the type of pneumonia, severity of illness, and healthcare provider's recommendation. Should be emphasized that the infection may be transmitted to other children through close contact. Okay, COPD is a preventable and treatable, slowly progressive respiratory disease of airflow obstruction involving the airways, pulmonary parenchyma, or both. Parenchyma includes any form of lung tissue, including bronchioles, bronchi, blood vessels, interstitium, and alveoli. The airflow limitation or obstruction in COPD is not fully reversible. Most patients with COPD present with overlapping signs and symptoms of emphysema and chronic bronchitis, which are two distinct disease processes. COPD may include diseases that cause airflow obstruction, such as emphysema and 
chronic bronchitis or a combination of these disorders. Other diseases such as cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, and asthma are classified as chronic pulmonary disorders. Asthma is considered a distinct separate disorder and is classified as an abnormal airway condition characterized primarily by reversible inflammation. COPD can coexist with asthma. Both of these diseases have the same major symptoms. However, symptoms are generally more variable in asthma than in COPD. Um, so, COPD caused 4.4% of all deaths in Canada in 2011. It's historically caused a higher percentage of deaths among men than women. And it's estimated that over 2 million Canadians are living with COPD. People with COPD commonly become symptomatic during the middle adult years, and the incidence of COPD increases with age. Um, in the proximal airways, so trachea and bronchi greater than 2 millimeters in diameter, changes include increased numbers of goblet cells and enlarged submucosal glands, both of which lead to hypersecretion of mucus. In peripheral airways, so bronchioles less than 2 millimeters in diameter, inflammation causes thickening of the airway wall, peribronchial fibrosis exudate in the airway and overall airway narrowing, um, which is obstructive bronchiolitis. Over time, this injury and repair process causes scar tissue formation and narrowing of the airway lumen. Inflammatory and structural changes also occur in the lung parenchyma, respiratory bronchioles, and alveoli. Alveolar wall destruction leads to loss of alveolar attachments and a decrease in elastic recoil. Finally, the chronic inflammatory process affects the pulmonary vasculature and causes thickening of the lining of the vessel and hypertrophy of smooth muscle, which may lead to pulmonary hypertension. Processes related to imbalances of substances, so proteinases and antiproteinases, in the lung may be responsible for airflow limitation. When activated by chronic inflammation, proteinases are, and other substances may be released, damaging the parenchyma of the lung. Parenchymal changes may also be consequences of inflammation, environmental, or genetic factors, such as alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Chronic bronchitis is a disease of the airways, is defined uh, as the presence of cough and sputum production for at least three months in each of two consecutive years. Although chronic bronchitis is clinically an epidemiologically useful term, it does not reflect the major impact of airflow limitation on morbidity and mortality in COPD. Um, in many cases, smoke or environmental pollutants irritate the airways, resulting in hypersecretion of mucus and inflammation. Mucus plugging of the airways reduces ciliary function. Bronchial walls also become thickened, further narrowing the bronchial lumen. Alveoli adjacent to the bronchioles may become damaged or fibrosed, resulting in altered function of the alveolar macrophages. This is significant because the macrophages play an important role in destroying foreign particles, including bacteria. As a result, the patient becomes more susceptible to respiratory infection. A wide range of viral, bacterial, and mycoplasmal infections can produce acute episodes of bronchitis. Exacerbations of chronic bronchitis are most likely to occur during the winter when viral and bacterial infections are more prevalent. In emphysema, impaired gas exchange, oxygen carbon dioxide, results from destruction of the walls of over-distended alveoli. Emphysema is a pathologic term that describes an abnormal distension of the air spaces beyond the terminal bronchioles with destruction of the walls of the alveoli. In addition, chronic inflammatory response may induce disruption of the parenchymal tissues and often progresses slowly for many years. 
as the walls of the alveoli are destroyed, a process accelerated by recurrent infections, the alveolar surface in direct contact with the pulmonary capillaries continually decreases. This causes an increase in dead space, so long area where no gas exchange can occur, and impaired oxygen diffusion, which leads to hypoxemia. In later stages of the disease, carbon dioxide elimination is impaired, resulting in increased carbon dioxide tension in arterial blood, hypercapnia, leading to respiratory acidosis. As the alveolar walls continue to break down, the pulmonary capillary bed is reduced in size. Consequently, resistance to pulmonary blood flow is increased, forcing the right ventricle to maintain a higher blood pressure in the pulmonary artery. Hypoxemia may further increase pulmonary artery pressures, which is called pulmonary hypertension. Core pulmonale, one of the complications of emphysema, is right-sided heart failure brought on by long-term high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries. This high pressure in the pulmonary arteries and right ventricle lead to the backup of blood in the venous system, resulting in dependent edema, distended neck veins, or pain in the region of the liver. There are two main types of emphysema based on changes taking place in the lung. Both types may occur in the same patient. In the panlobular panacinar type of emphysema, there is destruction of the respiratory bronchial alveolar duct and alveolus. All air spaces within the lobule are essentially enlarged, but there is little inflammatory disease. A hyperinflated or hyperexpanded chest, marked dyspnea on exertion and weight loss typically occur. To move air into and out of the lungs, negative pressure is required during inspiration, and an adequate level of positive pressure must be attained and maintained during expiration. Instead of being an involuntary passive act, expiration becomes active and requires muscular effort. In the centrolobular or centroacinar form, pathologic changes take place mainly in the center of the secondary lobule, preserving the peripheral portions of the acinus, a terminal airway unit where gas exchange occurs. Frequently, there is derangement of ventilation perfusion ratios, producing chronic hypoxemia, hypercapnia, polycythemia, which is an increase in red blood cells, and episodes of right-sided heart failure. This leads to central cyanosis and respiratory failure. The patient also develops peripheral edema. Risk factors include environmental exposures and host factors. Um, cigarette smoking is the most important risk factor. A dose-response relationship exists between the intensity of smoking. Uh, the pack year history, and the decline in pulmonary function. Other environmental risk factors include smoking pipes, cigars, and other types of tobacco. Passive smoking, secondhand smoke, also contributes to respiratory symptoms and COPD. Smoking depresses the activity of scavenger cells and affects the respiratory tract ciliary cleansing mechanism, which keeps breathing passages free of inhaled irritants, bacteria, and other foreign matter. Clinical manifestations, chronic cough, sputum production, and dyspnea. Symptoms often worsen over time. Weight loss is common because dyspnea interferes with eating and the work of breathing is energy depleting. They're at risk for respiratory insufficiency and respiratory infections or COPD exacerbation, which in turn increase the risk for acute and chronic respiratory failure. In patients with COPD who have primary emphysematous component, chronic hyperinflation leads to the barrel chest thorax configuration. In advanced emphysema, abdominal muscles may also contract on inspiration. There are systemic or extrapulmonary manifestations of COPD. They include musculoskeletal wasting, metabolic syndrome, and depression. Assessment and diagnostic findings. Nurse obtains a thorough health history for a patient with known or potential COPD. List the key factors to assess for the patients with known or suspected COPD. Pulmonary function studies are used to help confirm the diagnosis of COPD. 
determine disease severity, and follow disease progression. Spirometry is used to evaluate airflow obstruction, which is determined by the ratio of FEV1 to force vital capacity. Spirometric results are expressed as an absolute volume and as a percentage of the predicted value using appropriate normal values for gender, age, and height. With obstruction, the patient either has difficulty exhaling or cannot forcibly exhale air from the lungs, reducing the FEV1. So assessing patients with COPD is going to include health history and a physical assessment. Arterial blood gas measurements may also be obtained to assess baseline oxygenation and gas exchange and are especially important in advanced COPD. A chest x-ray may be obtained to exclude alternative diagnoses. Computed tomography chest scan is not routinely obtained in the diagnosis of COPD, but a high-resolution CT scan may help in the differential diagnosis. Finally, screening for alpha antitrypsin deficiency may be performed for patients younger than 45 or for those with a strong family history of COPD, particularly if they have a family history of blood relatives with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency or COPD that is primarily emphysematous in nature. Um, Okay, so grades of COPD. Grade 1 is mild. Um, FEV1 and FVC is less than 70%. FEV1 is greater than or equal to 80% predicted. Grade 2 is moderate. FEV1 over FVC is less than 70%. FEV1 is 50 to 80% predicted. Grade 3 is severe. FEV1 over FVC is less than 70%. FEV1 is less than 30 to 50%. And grade 4 is very severe. FEV1 over FVC is less than 70%. And FEV1 is less than 30%. Complications include respiratory insufficiency and failure. Um, are major life-threatening complications of COPD. The acuity of onset and the severity of respiratory failure depend on baseline pulmonary function, pulse oximetry, or ABG values. Comorbid conditions and the severity of other complications of COPD. Respiratory insufficiency and failure may be chronic with severe COPD or acute with severe bronchospasm or pneumonia in the patient with severe COPD. Acute respiratory insufficiency and failure may necessitate ventilatory support until other acute complications such as infection can be treated. Um, Medical management, so therapeutic strategies for the patient with COPD include promoting smoking cessation as appropriate, prescribing medications that typically include bronchodilators, and may include corticosteroids, managing exacerbations, and providing supplemental oxygen therapy as indicated. Smoking is the best cost-effective way to prevent COPD. To quit smoking, just to clarify. Okay, I'm not going to read the pharmacology section of this because we have already read about that in the pharmacology textbook. Um, An exacerbation of COPD is defined as an event in the natural course of the disease characterized by acute changes worsening in the patient's respiratory symptoms beyond the normal day-to-day variations. Primary causes of an acute exacerbation include tracheobronchial infection and air pollution. The cause of approximately one-third of severe exacerbations cannot be identified. Dalaresp may be used as a treatment to reduce the risk of exacerbations in patients with severe COPD associated with chronic bronchitis and a history of exacerbations. Roflumilast is a selective phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor and is taken as a tablet once daily. Treatment of an exacerbation requires identifying the primary cause, if possible, and administering the specific treatment. Optimization of bronchodilator medications is the first-line therapy and involves identifying the best medication or combinations of medications 
taken on a regular schedule for a specific patient. Depending on the signs and symptoms, corticosteroids, antibiotic agents, oxygen therapy, and intensive respiratory interventions may also be used. Indications for hospitalization for acute exacerbation of COPD include severe dyspnea that does not respond adequately to initial therapy, confusion or lethargy, respiratory muscle fatigue, paradoxical chest wall movement, peripheral edema, worsening or new onset of central cyanosis, persistent or worsening hypoxemia, and the need for non-invasive or invasive assisted mechanical ventilation. The outcome from an exacerbation of COPD is closely related to the development of respiratory acidosis, the presence of significant comorbidities, and the need for non-invasive or invasive positive pressure ventilatory support. Indications for hospitalization include marked increase in intensity of symptoms, severe underlying COPD, onset of new physical signs such as the use of accessory muscles, paradoxical chest wall movements, worsening or new onset of central cyanosis, peripheral edema, signs of right heart failure, and reduced alertness, failure to respond to initial uh, medical management, older age, and insufficient home support. When the patient arrives in an ED, the first line of treatment is supplemental oxygen therapy and rapid assessment to determine if the exacerbation is life-threatening. Short-acting inhaled bronchodilator may be used to assess response to treatment. Oral or IV corticosteroids in addition to bronchodilators are recommended in the hospital management of a COPD exacerbation. Um, antibiotics also benefit patients with COPD because bacterial infections often follow viral infections. Okay, um, finally, asthma. Is a heterogeneous disease usually characterized by chronic airway inflammation. This chronic inflammatory disease of the airways causes airway hyperresponsiveness, mucosal edema, and mucus production. This inflammation ultimately leads to recurrent episodes of asthma symptoms, so cough, chest tightness, wheezing, and dyspnea. It is estimated that the number of Canadians living with diagnosed asthma was 3.8 million, or 10.8% of the population, in 2011-2012. Um... Prevalence of asthma increased steadily in childhood, peaking in 10 to 14 age group for males and 15 to 19 age group in females. Allergy is the strongest predisposing factor for asthma. Chronic exposure to airway irritants or allergens also increases the risk of asthma. Common allergens can be seasonal, grass tree and weed pollens, or perennial mold, dust, roaches, and animal dander. Common triggers are Common triggers for asthma symptoms and exacerbations include airway irritants, such as air pollutants, cold heat, weather changes, strong odors or perfumes, smoke, occupational exposure, foods, shellfish, nuts, exercise, stress, hormonal factors, bowel respiratory tract infections, medications, and gastroesophageal reflux. Most people who have asthma are sensitive to a variety of triggers. Pathophysiology. So, asthma is reversible diffuse airway inflammation that leads to long-term airway narrowing, this narrowing, which is exacerbated by various changes in the airway, includes bronchoconstriction, airway edema, airway hyperresponsiveness, and airway remodeling. The inflammation leads to obstruction from the following. Swelling of the membranes that line the airways, which is called mucosal edema. Reducing the airway diameter. Contraction of the bronchial smooth muscle that encircles the airways, known as bronchospasm, causing further narrowing, and increased mucus production, which diminishes airway size and may entirely plug the bronchi. Three most common symptoms of asthma are cough, dyspnea, and wheezing. In some instances, cough may be, only, may be the only symptom. Asthma attacks often occur at night or early in the morning, possibly due to circadian variations that influence airway receptor thresholds. An asthma exacerbation may begin abruptly, but most frequently is preceded by increasing symptoms over the previous few days. 
There is cough with or without mucus production. At times, mucus is so tightly weighed in the narrowed airway that the patient cannot cough it up. There may be generalized wheezing, the sound of airflow through narrowed airways, first on expiration and then possibly during inspiration as well. Generalized chest tightness and dyspnea occur. Expiration requires effort and becomes prolonged as the exacerbation progresses, diaphoresis, tachycardia, and a widened pulse pressure may occur along with hypoxemia and central cyanosis. A late sign of poor oxygenation. Although severe life-threatening hypoxemia can occur in asthma, it is relatively uncommon. The hypoxemia is secondary to a ventilation perfusion mismatch and readily responds to supplemental oxygenation. Symptoms of exercise-induced asthma include maximal symptoms during exercise, absence of nocturnal symptoms, and sometimes only a description of choking sensation during exercise. Assessment and diagnostic findings. Um, airflow is at least partially reversible and other causes have been excluded. Positive family history and environmental factors, including seasonal changes, high pollen counts, mold, pet dander, climate changes, particularly the cold air and air pollution, are primarily associated with asthma. Um, also, occupation-related chemicals, foods, and compounds. Comorbid conditions that may accompany asthma include viral infections, gastroesophageal reflux disease, drug-induced asthma, and allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Other possible allergic reactions may accompany asthma include eczema, rashes, possible, um, and temporary edema. Specific questions in the assessment may help to evaluate the patient's asthma control include have your symptoms ever awakened you at night or early in the morning, having needed your quick-acting relief medication more than usual, having needed unscheduled care for your asthma, a call to the primary provider's office or um, emergency department, have your symptoms impacted your normal activities at school. During acute episodes, sputum and blood tests may disclose eosinophils at elevated levels. Uh, serum levels of IgE may be elevated if allergy is present. Arterial blood class analysis and pulse oximetry may reveal hypoxemia during acute attacks. Initially, hypo hypocapnia and respiratory alkalosis are present. As the patient's condition worsens and he or she becomes more fatigued, the PaCO2 may increase because carbon dioxide is 20 times more diffusible than oxygen. It is rare for PaCO2 to be normal or elevated in a person who is breathing very rapidly. The occurrence of a severe continuous reaction is referred to as status asthmaticus and is considered life-threatening. Complications of asthma may include status asthmaticus, respiratory failure, pneumonia, and atelectasis. Airway obstruction, particularly during acute asthmatic episodes, often results in hypoxemia, requiring the administration of oxygen and the monitoring of pulse oximetry and arterial blood gases. Fluids are given because people with asthma are frequently dehydrated from diaphoresis and insensible fluid loss with hyperventilation. I'm not reading pharmacology, again, because we read about that in the pharmacology textbook. Okay, nursing management. An immediate care of patients with asthma depends on the severity of symptoms. Patient may be treated successfully as an outpatient as asthma symptoms are relatively mild or may require hospitalization and intensive care symptoms um, if they are acute and severe. Uh, patient and family are often frightened and anxious because of the patient's dyspnea. Calm approach is an important aspect of care. The nurse assesses the patient's respiratory status by monitoring the severity of symptoms, breath sounds, peak flow, pulse oximetry, and vital signs. Nurse generally performs the following interventions. So obtains a history of allergic reactions to medications before administering meds, identifies medication the patient is taking, administers medications as prescribed, and 
monitors the patient's response to those medications. These medications may include an antibiotic if the patient has an underlying respiratory infection, administers fluids if the patient is dehydrated. If the patient requires intubation because of acute respiratory failure, the um, nurse assists with intubation procedure, continues close monitoring of the patient, and keeps the patient and family informed about procedures. Okay, status asthmaticus is an asthma exacerbation can range from mild to severe with potential respiratory arrest. The term status asthmaticus is sometimes used to describe rapid onset severe and persistent asthma that does not respond to conventional therapy. The attacks can occur with little or no warning and can progress rapidly to asphyxiation. Infection, anxiety, nebulizer, abuse, dehydration, increased adrenergic blockage, and nonspecific irritants may contribute to these episodes. An acute episode may be precipitated by hypersensitivity to medications such as aspirin, beta blockers, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Pathophysiology, um, inflammation of bronchial mucosa, constriction of the bronchiolar smooth muscle, and thickened secretions decrease the diameter of the bronchi and occur in status asthmaticus. Most common scenario is severe bronchospasm with mucus plugging, leading to asphyxia. Ventilation perfusion abnormality results in hypoxemia. There is a reduced PaO2 and initial respiratory alkalosis with a decreased PaCO2 and an increased pH. As status asthmaticus work worsens, the PaCO2 increases and the pH decreases, reflecting respiratory acidosis. Clinical manifestations include labored breathing, prolonged exhalation, engorged neck veins, and wheezing. However, the extent of wheezing does not indicate the severity of the attack. As the obstruction worsens, the wheezing may disappear. This is frequently a sign of impending respiratory failure. Um, so it can be evaluated by general assessment of the patient, degree of breathlessness, ability to talk, positioning of patient, level of alertness or cognitive function, physical assessments or respiratory rate, use of accessory muscles, presence of central cyanosis, auscultatory findings, pulse and pulses paradoxes, lab evaluation, so peak expiratory flow after and pulses per, um, a bronchodilator, PaO2 and PaCO2 and pulse oximetry. Pulmonary function studies are the most accurate means of assessing an acute severe airway obstruction, though not practical to obtain during this type of emergent situation. Arterial blood gas measurement and or pulse oximetry are attained if the patient cannot perform pulmonary function maneuvers because of severe obstruction or fatigue or if the patient does not respond to treatment. Respiratory alkalosis is most common finding in patients with an ongoing asthma exacerbation and is due to hyperventilation. Nursing alert and status asthmaticus, increasing PaCO2 to normal levels or levels indicating respiratory acidosis is a danger sign signifying impending respiratory failure. Medical management, so short-acting beta-2 adrenergic agonist, subsequently a short course of systemic corticosteroids, especially if the patient does not respond to short-acting beta-2 adrenergic agonist. Corticosteroids are critical in the therapy of status asthmaticus and are used to decrease the intense airway inflammation and swelling. Uh, more commonly, short-acting bronchodilators will be given via a nebulizer. Uh, the patient does not have to work to coordinate their breathing pattern, which can otherwise cause additional anxiety in this acute situation, so that's the use of a spacer. Patient requires supplemental oxygen and IV fluids for hydration. Oxygen therapy is initiated to treat dyspnea, central cyanosis, and hypoxemia. High-flow supplemental oxygen is best delivered using a partial or complete non-rebreather. Selectives are con sedatives are contraindicated. Magnesium sulfate, a, magne um, a calcium 
antagonist may be given to induce smooth muscle relaxation. The magnesium can relax smooth muscle and hence cause bronchodilation by competing with calcium at calcium-mediated smooth muscle binding sites. IV, um, IV magnesium sulfate is not recommended for routine use in asthma exacerbations. However, when given in a single 2-gram infusion over 20 minutes, it may be helpful in treating patients who present with severely compromised pulmonary function who have not responded to initial therapy with persistent hypoxemia. Adverse effects of magnesium sulfate may include facial warmth, flushing, tingling, nausea, central nervous system depression, respiratory depression, and hypotension. If there is no response to repeated treatments, hospitalization is required. Other criteria for hospitalization include poor pulmonary function test results and deteriorating blood gas levels, so respiratory acidosis, which may indicate that the patient is tiring and will require mechanical ventilation. Most patients do not need mechanical ventilation, but it is used for patients in respiratory failure, for those who tire and are too fatigued by the attempt to breathe, or for those whose condition does not respond to initial treatment. Main focus of nursing management is to actively assess the airway and the patient's response to treatment. The nurse should be prepared for the next uh, intervention if the patient does not respond to treatment. The nurse constantly monitors the patient for the first 12 to 24 hours or until the severe exacerbation resolves. The nurse also assesses the patient's skin trigger for signs of dehydration. Fluid intake is essential to combat dehydration, to loosen secretions, and to facilitate expectoration. Nurses administer IV fluids as prescribed up to 3 to 4 liters per day unless contraindicated. Blood pressure and cardiac rhythm should be monitored continuously during the acute phase and until the patient stabilizes and responds to therapy. The patient's energy levels need to be conserved, and his or her room should be quiet and free of respiratory irritants, including flowers, tobacco smoke, perfumes, or odors of cleaning agents. Non-allergenic pillows should be used, and asthma attack may also be precipitated or aggravated by exposure to latex. If the patient has a latex allergy, therefore this type of hypersensitivity must be identified and latex-free products used as warranted. Once the ex- exacerbation is resolved, the factors that precipitated the exacerbation should be identified and strategies for their future avoidance implemented. In addition, the patient's medication plan should be reviewed.